You look intense. I am very intense. I'm very intense here. Okay. Well, let's just uh, dive in here. Um, I, uh, I'm excited today for um, today's podcast because, as everyone can see here, I have uh, William Paul Young with me. It's uh, great to have you on um, the show with us today. Thanks for giving us your time. Um, so all of you uh, do know um, Paul Young. He's the author of The Shack. Um, I've heard a couple of stories um, from how all of that came, but man, I'm really excited, uh, Paul. Thanks for uh, joining me today um, and taking a little time with me. Welcome. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Every conversation is a two-way street, so uh, <laughs> yes, every yes. actual conversation. Sometimes <laughs> it's uh, only, only a monologue, and I'm not interested in those. <laughs> Good. Good. Well, um, I'm I'm excited to learn from you. And so, um, well, here at the beginning, I don't. I've uh, the conversation that we've had a couple of emails exchanged back and forth. I've heard a couple of YouTube videos, um, and but I'm just really excited to get to know you a little bit. So, for those of, of our listeners that have never met you before, give us a little introduction, a little bit, and. Uh, how did um, how did the author, the global speaker, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? So, um, born in Grand Prairie, Alberta, Canada, at a year old, went uh, overseas with missionary parents to the um, highlands of then Netherlands, New Guinea. It's now West Papua, and uh, grew up among a tribal culture who had never seen a white person before. And uh, <clears throat> that's where I spent basically the first 10 years of my life, came back to Canada. My dad was an itinerant preacher. We moved around a lot, uh, uh, 13 schools by the time I graduated high school. And, um, and then I didn't know what to do. So I went to the same Bible school my parents had. And it wasn't to become a professional uh, Christian at all. It was, it was because... <clears throat> I was in, I was very much in a search for the sense of the nature and character of God. It was a, it was a driving thing, but I was really messed up too. You know, my childhood had involved sexual abuse and, and uh, my relationship with my dad was very difficult. He was um, an abusive disciplinarian. Uh, but, you know, at that time I didn't understand that he had been harmed by his dad and his dad had harmed his dad before him. And, and um, I just knew that, that I, I wanted to understand the nature and character of God. So I went to the only place that I knew, um, and that was Bible school. Then after that, ended up in seminary, um, ended up in uh, Portland, Oregon, where where I ran into some very different characters. I had, a, I had a psychiatrist, yeah, psychiatrist friend of mine in, in uh, Saskatchewan who had said, you know, Paul, I think there's a guy, a friend of mine down in, in Gresham, Oregon, who you should uh, spend a few days with. And he's different than you. <clears throat> and I was very much a rationalist, lived in my head. It was a compartmentalized defensive mechanism. Um, and I, I met Bill, and Bill had been a warlock, had trained uh, 25 witches, and had, uh, had led 24 of them to the Lord after he had been in a confrontation with God. Um, and so, you know, uh, in, a, in a sauna at, at his apartment complex, he basically read my mail, um, and uh, that started a a different kind of journey because, you know, my heart was so broken and, uh, and I, my survival skills were all based on words and intellect. Although I didn't actually think I was smart or creative, you know, I had just so much shame that I just thought I fooled people. And, um, I performed well, 
but that was the only way to get some sense of approval or affection. But at the same time, you, you didn't ever believe it was actually true. You, uh, you just thought you knew how to fool people. Um, in Gresham, um, I started attending a four-square church. Was, that's the sister side of the Christian Missionary Alliance that I grew up in. It's more the Pentecostal side, although CMA has deep Pentecostal roots and um, and uh, but had turned had turned uh, toward the theological, non-charismatic, non-Pentecostal side of things. And uh, and I ran in, I ran into a preacher named Jerry Cook, who was a different sort of person that I'd ever met. And I'm thinking like, wow, a smart Pentecostal. I mean, how strange is that? And uh, so, so I ended up marrying Kim. Long story. Um, we have six children. And um, after Matthew, our sixth child was born. He's 29, almost 29 now. Well, he is 29. He'll be 30 in May. And um, um, soon after, uh, within... Uh, six months, beginning of January 94, Kim caught me in a three-month affair with one of her best friends. And my whole world that I had created and set up um, in order to perform and survive absolutely crashed. And the choice was, can I find a way to change? Or the option was to kill myself. That's the only two alternatives. I could have run away with this person, but I was so exhausted from performing and um, my heart was so broken that it wasn't an option. And uh, I could either face Kim. Kim. Kim and her five sisters are called the force. And so, you know, it's like, <laughs> may the force be with you, you know. So <clears throat> that started an 11 year dismantling, rebuilding journey. And, um, and, and that was, that was the restoration of my relationship with Kim. It took 11 years for her to trust me again. You know, forgiveness is, is for the sake of the victim in order that they can move on with their life. And it's not, it's not difficult in the sense that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to the mountain of unforgiveness, that's in one of the gospels, and uh, be picked up and cast into the sea. And forgiveness feels like a mountain, but it takes a mustard seed to mm. do it. And, it. and it's really for the sake of the person who's been harmed. Reconciliation is for the person who's done the perpetrating, the, done the harm. And that's a different journey. You have to become a truth teller. You have to deal with the consequences of the choices that you've made. And you have to change over time. And uh, that, took, that took me 11 years. And basically... I started from scratch. I just, everything blew, blew up. So I started from scratch. And um, 11 years later, Kim, Kim trusted me. The 12th year was the year I turned 50. And uh, I'm working three jobs, basic, mostly blue collar stuff. And, um, and I finally feel like, oh my gosh, I'm like one of the freest people I know. I don't have any addictions. I uh, don't keep any secrets. And, uh, and for the first time, I felt like, so this is what a child feels like. And I was the same person in every situation, which I didn't know was a possibility growing up. Everything was lived out here and, uh, and from the outside in. So if you don't know who you are, you have to gather information from the outside. You know, people's approval, um, now it's like strangers or unknown people, trolls on the social media will tell you the truth of who you are, right? And, um, and so it's, uh, it's one of those things, performance orientation, because you feel like, you know, you got nothing on the inside in order to live out from. So the alternative is you live from the outside in. And unfortunately, a lot of my theology, as beautiful as much of it was, really had a low view of humanity and uh and uh, you know the western theological point of view that followed uh luther's we are snow covered dung you know which i call piece of shit theology and um 
but that became the basis for my identity. And my shame told me that was true. My abuse told me that was true. Um, my growing up and the experience I had told me that was true. My dad told me that was true. So it wasn't a big surprise that God felt the same way as everybody else. And um, that year, my 50th year, I finally felt healthy enough to do something that Kim actually had been asking me for a few years. Every once in a while, she'd bring it up. And that was to write something as a gift for our kids that would put in one place how I thought, as she said, because you think outside the box. And on, on the train, Max train downtown to one of my jobs, my main job, I wrote The Shack. I wrote mostly on that train. I wrote a story for my kids to give them a Christmas present because I had nothing else. We were, we had nothing, but we had everything that mattered by that point. And uh, I made uh, 15 copies at Office Depot that did everything that I wanted it to do. And six went to the kids. Kim and I kept copy and the rest went to my friends. And, uh, and I went back to work. It was never a bucket list thing to become a published author. It wasn't on my, you know, dreamscape or whatever people talk about. It, it was just, it was just a gift of love for my kids because I didn't want them growing up with the God that I did. And, um, and my friends kept giving it away and that started the whole chain reaction to become this thing that I feel like a third party watching, cheering from the cheap seats, you know, and, uh, and it's, it's really quite an, a remarkable, unexpected, unanticipated adventure. Then people say, well, did it change your life? And I go like, mm, not in any way that matters, because by the time I wrote it, identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, and love were all in place. And those were the things that mattered. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I've never since the journey toward healing, I, I don't have any desire for notoriety, a platform, a following, any of that. None of that stuff matters to me. And it's, uh, that's, but that's how it all started. Crazy. So we have six kids. <clears throat> we now have 15 grandchildren from 15 years old down to one. And we're not done. And uh, our, our last of our unmarried kids is, actually is Matthew. He's getting married this summer. And, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's been an, you know, you look at it and you, you step back and you go like, and we can all do this. How kind God has been. It's not about the book in terms of, of, of me. The book is kind of like, thank you, Holy Spirit. We will have more, please. You know, uh, and, and, and not regarding me. It's just the ripple effect of that thing has been unbelievably beautiful but as you get to know the character of god it's believably beautiful mm -hmm. and um so that's that's what brought me to to this day um, and lots of other little stories and weavings and amazing things and you look back and you go like there has never been a moment that God was not there. And that includes the abuse, that includes the mm -hmm. running, that includes the attempt to perform, that includes all the lying, which was a survival skill. That includes the desperate, hellish process of coming to, of moving step by incremental step toward healing. And, uh, God won't do those things for us, but God will never allow us to be there alone. I think separation is one of the greatest theological lies that's ever been perpetrated, that somehow we have the power by our choices and actions to separate ourselves from God. Mm. And uh, that is such a damnable lie. There's never been separation. And... Uh, and 
we're created in Christ. We live and move and have our being. And Paul said that to Athenian pagans, you know, you live and move and have your being. You are children of God. And since we're all children of God, it goes on from there. So you'll yeah. never meet a person who's not a child of God, and you'll never meet a person in whom the Holy Spirit and the Father and Son do not dwell. Because mm -hmm. Athanasius and many others in the early church would say, well, yeah, you know, if the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit did not dwell in you, you would immediately lapse into non-being, you know, so. Yeah. I, I've listened to so many of your teachings and I'm like over again, I'm like, okay, I got to start over again. And I just started a new kind of playlist and, and digging into to even a new one. And I just, I think it's really um, you unique because um, seemingly you came out of nowhere, just a normal working guy and giving a gift to his children. And one thing leads to another. And now here you are, um, and, and several of your books have done really well, not just The Shack. There's been other books, and I'm excited. I just bought um, another, another book of yours just the other day, and so I'm excited to dig into that. I just think that God has just given you an amazing um, uh, place of articulation that is really – our stories aren't unalike – um, very much. Um, I, of course, I didn't have time in Papua New Guinea, but I, I was raised as a ministry kid. A lot of the same foundational storylines are very similar in between you and ours. And I found myself about three years ago on the um, rat wheel of lies, deception, and trying to earn my way and earn acceptance and approval. And I found myself in this place of burnout, of just brokenness, and I'm about three years into figuring that, and thank goodness, there's lots of resources and lots of ways of digging in. And um, I want I want to talk about two specific places in the shack, and I'd love to have you just kind of unpack it for us just a little bit. But um, the first one is a is a is a quote out of a, a friend of mine um, wrote a book, a series of books called uh, Doctor Carrie Wood. And he has a, uh, a series of books. It's the, the Abba Journey. It's three books, the Abba Foundation, the Abba Factor, and uh, the Abba Formation. And it's just understanding and getting to know the, the Abba that Jesus knows. But on his uh, chapter five, he has a quote. And I read the quote, and then I just ended up being in that section of the shack. And I read how this quote unpacked in the shack. But Dr. Kerry Wood would quoted you in his uh, in his book, um, The Abba Factor, and he says, "Lies are little fortresses. Inside them, you can feel safe and powerful. Through your little fortress of lies, you try to run your life and manipulate others." The very next day, after I read this chapter and had a discussion, I actually opened up the chapter in the section in the shack where this quote was taken from. And I, I realized that um, what led me to the place of discovering my own brokenness and leaning in to discover my own healing was I had realized I had done this. I had built this whole false reality and then tried to navigate my life inside of that place of protection so I'm I'm just I'm just curious to you is when you were developing this idea and coming up with the dialogue back and forth, like what 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 were you thinking when you said this this thing of tearing down these lies and becoming authentic and real and stop with the like let's be truth tellers let's stop with the lies stops with the I don't know I just think of um uh the the county fair stop with the show let's just do what's real so what were you thinking as you were beginning to like this is an important reality that i must articulate like i said in a few minutes ago is that lying for most people is not intended to deceive it's intended to self-protect and a lot of that is because you're self-protecting a false identity anyway you know so the false thing always leads to false expression. And a lot of us absolutely don't know who we are. And so we're constantly looking on the outside to define who we are. 
because we feel so inadequate, not enough, and so full of fear and shame on the inside that the only place that we think we can get an idea of our identity would be from the outside. And so we're at, when I said, you know, I found out that I, I could be the same person in every situation, you know, whether I was in a hotel room by myself or whether I was with my kids or family or friends or enemies, that was an incredible realization of the growth that I'd made. Because when somebody asks you a question and you have a choice whether to shade the truth, tell the truth, be a truth teller, outright lie, it's because there's something that you're afraid of. Fear is at the basis of that. And you know, that, that had dominated me most of my life to that point. And uh, it, was, it was my way to try to keep those little bits of light, you know, the little bits of approval and affection from coming. And uh, the thing about a self-identity, a false one, is that the normal recourse for a false identity is self-promotion and self-protection. And so you can always, you can almost always tell you're around a false identity when you hear someone or watch someone self-promote and self-protect. And uh, because if you know who you are, you don't need to do that. You know, Jesus never needed to do that, but I needed to do that. And, uh, mm -hmm. and it's because part of it is I had really no idea who I was from the inside out. I only was who people told me I was. And then I, I, you know, this is interesting. This is why I hated a compliment. I really despised being complimented. And it was because a compliment raised the bar and became a new way to fail. Right? It, it, it came as an expectation for performance. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I, I kind of averted it. I, you know, pushed it off. I did whatever I had to do in order to, you know, cause I wanted to say, you have no idea who I am. <laughs> you know, you're complimenting me on something. And, and uh, you know, what I am is much more loathsome and, uh, and shame dominated my world. So, and shame is always rooted in some sort of fear anyway. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if I even approached your question. Yeah, I think, I think that's good. I think my question was, is um, what, you know, um, I think that most people are trying to, are on a journey of discovering, of discovering. And if they're really honest with themselves, they'll come to the same realization that you just said is you truthfully just don't know who you are. So what would you, what, how would you mentor? How would you coach someone in like, I've, not lived my from my true self and so what would you how would you how would you coach me in beginning the process of living from your true authentic self i first thing i would ask you and so let's do this scott what right now in your life are you most afraid of hmm Well, I think that I'm probably mostly afraid right now. What captivates most of my thought is my 11-year-old daughter. Who is she going to marry? Am I putting the right stuff in her, to equipping her to make the right decisions? Like, I think most of my conversation is around my 11-year-old daughter. Okay. So why does, that, why does that make you struggle? Why, you know, what's behind that? Um, the person that she will fall in love with um, will be somebody that can truthfully care for her heart. But what's in you that is afraid? I will fail her. I haven't done a good enough job. Yeah. So you don't have an, you're not going to be enough for that. Mm -hmm. I won't be enough for that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd say, so who, who do you believe you are? What's, what's, 
what's amongst the deepest things of who you are. If you can get past any sense of shame and you get down to being down to the core of who you are, tell me who you are. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's a tell, great... me, tell me who you want to be. Um, I want to be, I want to be fully alive. I want to laugh, love, play, and enjoy my closest friendships. Uh, who I am is connected. Okay. That's deep down inside of you, yeah? Mm -hmm. Why do you think it's there? Why do you think those kinds of deep things are there? Is there, is there deeper stuff um, like, you know, you want to be a liar, you want to be uh, impatient, you want to be, is, is there any deeper stuff like that? No. So you're telling me, you're telling me the deep stuff. And the deep stuff is, I want to love well. I want to live well. I want, I want to be patient. I want to be kind. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, where does that come from? Well, I was designed this way. God made me this way. Why? Because he's this way. <laughs> so you're saying, you're telling me that the deepest part of who you are is grounded in the fact that you are made in the image and likeness of God. 100% yes. So that's that's deeper than anything anybody can tell you. Mm, yeah. Okay. Um, I have friends on death row, and they would say the same thing. I haven't met anybody on death row that wants to be a killer. Not one. Okay. So there is something that is grounded in the deepest parts of being human that is actually the DNA of God right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Likeness of God. And that's the deepest place. So if you ground your identity in being in the image and likeness of God, and you begin to trust that, what does that say about you? What's the truth of who you are? Mm -hmm. You know, the truth of who you are is that you are kind. You know, this is what absolutely destroyed my porn addiction was this right because i i was i was an addict came back from the mission field and within a couple of years i was an addict you know and especially coming from a background in which relationships are are they just didn't happen and so there's a profound sense of aloneness and pornography largely is the imagination of a relationship without the risk of a real one <laughs> yeah you know so and I hated it, hated myself, hated the addiction. Um, and, uh, you know, so I tried all the self-discipline stuff. Self-discipline is from the outside in, right? Mm -hmm. if, if you're a piece of crap to begin with, you have mm -hmm. no self-control. Mm -hmm. so you have to take external things as a way to try to, to defeat the internal things. Mm -hmm. Like the garbage that you are. So self-control um, wasn't an option, but self-discipline, but you try that and you fail. Mm -hmm. And uh, when my life blew up, because Kim didn't know, when I drugged that addiction into our marriage and, she, and I, I kept it at bay fairly successfully, but not permanently, you know? And, uh, but when I had to go and reconstruct my sense of worth and identity, and I suddenly began to see that I'm made in the image of God. Therefore, two things right off the bat. I'm pure of heart. That's the truth of who I am. I'm pure of yeah. heart. And I have self-control. And once I knew that was on the inside, I had a rock I could stand on. And uh, it, took, it took a little bit of time, but not much. And a little bit because you've got, you know, rooted neural pathways that are used to habitual kinds of things. And, uh, but this transformation didn't come through information. It came through revelation. I had mm -hmm. to see it. 
Mm -hmm. right? And once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. And mm -hmm. so I was no longer a piece of garbage. I was, I was somebody who did, who had forgotten who he was, right. Mm -hmm. or, did, or didn't know. And, um, and so that, that growing. So, so at the core of your being, a core of your being, do you think you are untrusting or trusting? Trusting. So why are you untrusting? Because the things you just told me about your daughter are all fear-based, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And are they present tense realities or are they future tense realities? They're 100% made up imaginary possibilities. The imagination is an absolutely powerful aspect of being human. And if you wed imagination to fear, then, you, then you'll create tragedy and things that don't exist. I don't know about you, but in my imagination, I've gone to my own funeral a bunch of times, you know, <laughs> and got, got pissed off because nobody else came and nobody else cried if they did come. And, and I've also <laughs> lost everything, ended up in a cardboard box under Burnside Bridge. The thing about fear and future tripping, future tripping is my code word for creating imaginations that aren't anything to do with a reality that is present. So in, in, my, in, my, in my fear, fear will always drive you out of the present mm. into an imagination of aloneness. That's what it will do. It won't let you stay present and it will push you to a place of aloneness. And it's, it has nothing to do with anything that is real. Nothing. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of, even our prayers a lot of times is to try to acquire grace for things that don't exist. <laughs> and, oh, that's so and, true. And God is like, what? You want me to give you grace for something that doesn't even exist? Like, how does that happen? And um, my goodness. And so, and so part of what you're dealing with with your daughter is the need for control and the need for certainty and the inability to trust that you don't have to play the Holy Spirit, but trust the Holy Spirit, right? Mm -hmm. All yeah. fear-based stuff. And so you'll begin to look at her relationships. You'll begin to look at whatever through this grid of independence, which is aloneness, because of course, you know, God's not big enough to deal with this, this perception. He may have been good in the past, but you know, and, uh, and so fear and control, because if you do not trust, you're going to move, fear will drive you into a place where the, you're the only one that you can trust. Mm -hmm. And our culture is full of it. Like, well, what if, and they create imaginations, like what if someone breaks into your house and they want to, um, and they're going to rape your wife and kill your kids. What are you going to do? Right? It's a creating a scenario that doesn't exist, that is future-based, and there is no God, there is no Holy Spirit, there is no presence of God, you're alone. So you need to have a bigger weapon than they do. But what if they have a really big weapon? Well, you better get a bigger weapon, right? Yes. And so it's like, okay, you're not dealing with something that is actually real. You're not dealing with the edge of a cliff. So it's not a present tense reality. You're mm -hmm. creating an imagination based on fear. And yeah. then because you're alone, you will find a way to, to compensate for that aloneness. And it's in a world that God does not exist. <laughs> right? It's all, yeah. it's all imaginary. Yeah. And, and so my question would have been, so Scott, is there a guy right now you're concerned with, with regard to your daughter? No, she's 11. <laughs> so you're spending a lot of time creating an imagination that doesn't exist. And, and you're, you're doing it in independence and aloneness and not in a framework of trust. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Um, take no thought for tomorrow. It's got, it will have enough issues and there'll be grace for it when you get there. I will put in your mouth what to say when you are in front of kings 
um, and princes and all that kind of stuff. Take every vain, empty, empty imagination captive that has raised itself up against the knowing of God. What's the knowing of God? What do you know about God? He, you can't trust him, right? That's the way we grew up. I got a letter from a gal after she read The Shack Missionary Kid. And, uh, and I didn't know her, but she wrote me and she, she said, you know, when I was growing up, I was really confused about the difference between God and Satan, except with Satan, there was more certainty. Oh, dear. I know, because you've got a God who is ambivalent or sometimes, you know, w wants to take you down a notch and he's mean about it and 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 wrathful and a God who will turn his face away. And and so, yeah, aren't you on your own? Well, if your view of God is screwed up, yeah, yeah, you're going to move toward independence and mm. you're not going to trust. And mm -hmm. so we'll create all the scenarios. I have a friend of mine, <laughs> a husband and a wife, and I, we know them very well and um, know their kids and all that. And uh, so her husband calls me up and he says, Paul, you need to talk to my wife. And I go, what's going on? And he says, well, she went to the doctor because she's been having symptoms for something. And um, the doctor told her it could be one of four different diseases, all of which could kill her. And so she's just gone down into the hole. Right. So I said, I'll call her. So I called her up and I said, hey, um, how are the kids and all that? We talked kids and stuff. And it was very general. And finally, she says, so, Paul, why are you calling me? And I go, oh, man, I forgot to tell you. I'm calling you to help you plan your funeral. <laughs> and there was this moment of silence and she bursts out laughing. She goes, oh, my gosh, my husband called you, didn't he? I said, yep. And she said, you know what I've been doing the last four days? And I said, not getting any sleep. <laughs> She said, yeah, haven't slept at all. I've been researching all four of these diseases, trying to, trying to get enough information so I come to a place of peace, right? But you can't. Information will never give you peace. And um, so she was just spiraling deeper and deeper in the hole. I said, yeah. So I figured we could figure out what kind of music you wanted, if there was anybody you didn't want to invite to your funeral, and and she's just like, it was so funny, but it was so obvious where she had gone because she was alone trying to figure out all this. It turned out to be none of them, by the way. And um, but, you know, she had invested a huge amount of energy, fear based energy into something that didn't exist. And and this is what we do. So. Who are you? You know, you're a child of God. You're made in the image of God. You're indwelt by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you're designed to live today. Only today. Only in this moment. And your whole life has led up to this moment. Mm -hmm. you know? And so the ever-present now is eternal life. And you mm -hmm. can tell because that's where everything real is. Mm -hmm. You love here and now. Mm -hmm. You can imagine loving people, but it doesn't exist. You know? mm -hmm. And so you know, the real world is right in front of you. And if you happen to physically die tomorrow, it will screw up a lot of your fear-based imaginations, you know. And um, a lot of the time that you've wasted trying to get a sense of control. And, mm -hmm. and we control. Uh, control is a myth. So is certainty. Both are absolute myths. There is, there is no such thing. You can be certain in the character and nature of God. But other than that, I mean, everything's sort of up for grabs. You just, you, you think that you are something and then you lose the capacity to do it and your identity then goes out the window, right? So you're trying to protect, self-protect, self-promote. They're all about fear. Fear is, the, fear is the driver of false identity. And, um, and so it's like, okay, why don't you stay in eternal life? Those who trust me will never die. Why is that? Because you're already experiencing eternal life. It's now. Now. Abide with me. 
fear not, I'm with you, rest. You know, all of this language that is all over the, the heart of Jesus is about staying here, you know, responding to that which is in front of you. You know, you probably do if you've listened to me at all, that the word responsibility doesn't exist in the Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. It doesn't. And yeah. And, and it's just not there. Mm -hmm. So, but it dominates both the faith community and the secular community. It's all about responsibility. And uh, mm -hmm. it, came, it came out of the industrial revolution when they needed, they needed an external sort of law to get people to, they basically trafficked people to feed their machinery that they were developing and creating. Mm -hmm. and, uh, they needed their blood, sweat, and tears, and money. And, uh, and it sounds like church, doesn't it? So, um, so, well, it does, you know, and uh, the institutional side of, of religion. And um, so they created, the, they took an, a verbal concept and they externalized it into a noun. And when you do that, you create a law, right? Like mm -hmm. the difference between expectation and expectancy. Expectancy is something that is open and alive from the inside. An expectation is a demand uh, that is something from the outside, you know. And, and I've found out that when you learn to live without expectations, everything's a gift. Mm -hmm. But expectations are just pre-planned disappointments. And um, <laughs> I could give you some really good examples, like my relationship with my dad. But um, they took the idea of having an ability to respond and they turned it into a responsibility and um, and they they it became um, something on the outside of you rather than something on the inside i have an ability to respond well now you have a responsibility that's a law you know so there's it's it's the expectation side of a contract mm -hmm. This is what you need to do. If you don't do this, we have remedies. You're going to be punished, whatever. And, and uh, why can't you be responsible? That kind of statement has no real definition, you mm -hmm. know, and it's to live up to what? Well, it's to live up to my expectations. What are your expectations? Well, I expect you, I expect you to make good decisions and choose the right guy and be safe and all of that. It's future performance oriented, right? Mm -hmm. And, but instead I have an ability to respond to the real world that is actually in front of me. Mm -hmm. You know, the real person that is actually in front of me, right? Not to some future trip in imagination. Yes. Fear. And imagination when it's wedded to love create is very creative, is fun, is, is um, is the world that you want to live in, and and love always does that, but and it keeps you present. It keeps you with the person that you're in front of, mm -hmm. and responding to situations as they unfold. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're trying to control things that don't exist, and it's like yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you right now, I did it enough. And, yeah. Uh, you know, it took me a long time to unwind that push for control. Mm -hmm. And and even recently, I, um, I uh, you know, during the COVID thing, people just went different directions, right? And fear just came to the surface, which was not something new. It had to have been there the whole time. And COVID was a big exposure, exposure of fear. And the, the unexposed is the unhealed, or the unexposed has no possibility of healing. And um, so this is why it's so beautiful to be in relationships where people have the capacity to press your buttons because all your crap then comes to the surface and it can be healed. You know, that's why you love your enemies. And um, 
So Alice Willard said, that's why we do church is because God tells you to love your enemies and you'll find plenty of enemies at church to figure out how to love. You can find them in your own family if you want. And uh, so uh, my daughter got pregnant with her first first child. This is that baby is, is now a little over a year old. And so I was reading up on all this stuff about how important vaccines were for mm -hmm. pregnant women and how the, you know, the possibility and the chances. And, you know, I was future tripping. She was going to have a, have a baby. It was going to die in utero. It was going to, you know, or the baby was going to be born, get COVID and die. I mean, I was down the road on this thing. And um, so, and looking for an opportunity to communicate my information in such a way that it was acceptable to her. So she would change her mind, right? That's, that was the goal. So they're swimming her and her husband are swimming in our pool. And um, I start having this conversation with, with my daughter. And, and I, I'm, she's like, dad, I just have a sense that this is, it's not right for me. Mm. Right. And I get frustrated. And finally I turn to her husband and I go like, this baby is as much yours. Why don't you do something? Mm. And I watch my words break my daughter's heart. Mm. She's just looking at me with tears rolling down her face. Because I tried to play the Holy Spirit instead of trust the Holy Spirit. Mm. And, and then for a half an hour, I kept justifying myself. I kept arguing with myself about how right I was and how concern was loving. This kind of concern was loving, right? Half an hour later, it was so obvious how much harm I had done. And I had to go and not just apologize, actually ask for forgiveness. Apologizing is too easy because it leaves the power in your side. But you ask for forgiveness. And if they say, why are you asking? Then you, you tell the truth about it. You know, and uh, I asked for forgiveness from both of them. And, uh, and my, my daughter graciously immediately forgave me, partly because she's, she knows, she knows I'm a human being and, and she doesn't have any imagination that I'm some kind of perfect person, you know, and that's, that's a shame-based thing that I can fall into if I get triggered. And, and I just, I just thought, what? the hell are you doing, you know? And, um, and it was a very significant growth moment for me in this journey because I want to control my daughter so that she makes the best choices that I would make so that her life will be good and everybody will be safe. <laughs> Isn't that justifiable? Absolutely. <laughs> because I have an imagination of how things are going to be wrong and they're going to go sideways. And, uh, and so who's going to do anything about it? seems like nobody's doing anything about it. So I need to do something about it. And, um, and it's all based on some imagination that doesn't exist. And again, it's because I think that I have a sense of the Holy spirit that is more profound and is deeper and is smarter than the person that I'm in front of. Yeah. And that is so much garbage. Wow. Wow. So most of um, the people that um, listen to this are, um, uh, are leaders in a, their main decision makers in a for-profit company. I have a couple of nonprofits that are on the missions, frontline, frontier yeah. missions. I have a couple of church organizations, but most of the people that we work with and um, conversate with and, and dream, pray with and for are main decision makers, department heads, all the way up to owners of major corporations that are, yep. you know, doing amazing things around the world, but they're just, they're leaders. They are, they're tasked with the responsibility of managing time and money and people. And 
if you had um, a season of time, whether that be a, a long-term committed, you know, mentoring relationship, or you had business leaders in a, in a conference setting where you could give them a class, what would, what would, what do you feel knowing now that what you know, and the journey of healing that the Lord brought you through, um, what, what would you want to talk to them about? What would you want to say equip, teach, train, top tier decision makers, what would you want to tell them? That your identity is not in what you do, mm -hmm. right? So the question is, how do we be in this world and not of it? How, to be, how, how would we live in a contract-oriented world system and be those who are not contract oriented, but people of love and people. What's the word that is the flip side of contract? There's contract and there's it's another C word. Um, it's not community. It's what's, what's the flip side of contract? I just covenant just, covenant. Thank you. That we be people of covenant and that we be in the world and not of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So. So because you, you're still going to make decisions, but those decisions are held loosely. They're held loosely because your identity is not based on it. And the love by which you love people is not based on it. I have a friend, Jamie Winship, who has this organization <laughs> called Identity Exchange, right? I just listened to this. This guy's blowing my mind. That's awesome yeah. that you're friends with him. Yeah. So... Um, he, he was in a room with 45 executives, some big companies, some not so big companies. And, and he says, we're going to take a minute each and I want us to go around and I want you to tell me about who you are. Give, tell me something about who you are. And the first guy says, well, I'm the C, uh, CFO of a company, a $2 billion company. We did we did $4 billion last year. Um, and Jamie said immediately he divided the room. Because at that point, everybody else would refer back. Well, you know, I'm not part of a $2 billion company, but, you know, we've done okay. And, and uh, went around the room like that. And it gets to the end. And Jamie said to me, he says, I wanted to stop that thing about you know, two minutes in and just sort of like hammered how, how misinformed everybody was in this. At the end, he goes, well, we've spent 45 minutes and I still know nothing about you. You know, <laughs> you've told me what you do, but I know nothing about you. So here's the question that I want to ask you. And it's one that I asked you kind of. His question was right now in your life, what is the biggest burden that you are carrying or the biggest thing you will fear? And that guy from the $2 billion company, he bursts into tears and he says, my kids won't talk to me. And around that human suffering, everybody united. And it became an entirely different conversation, you know? So, so part of this is you need to know who you are and that your identity is not grounded in your position, right? It's not. It's in being a child of God. It's being, it's being part uh, in a world system, but not of it. That means your identity is not linked to the success as it's defined. And, you know, you can, you can make projections and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't take much to really upset the, the whole apple cart, you know, like a little virus can really screw up things. And, um, and so it's like, all right, how do you do this? And it's, and it's like, well, know who you are, hold things loosely and relate to the person who's in front of you. Love the person who's in front of you. And, um, and a lot of times it's like, I don't even love the person that I am. 
right? And so that's got to be worked out because you don't have the capacity to give someone else what you don't have to give to yourself. And um, it's like, love, love, be, know that you're loved. And, you know, a lot of the ways that people have climbed the ladder and a lot of the ways that people have gotten into positions is based on fear. Mm-hmm. You know, what are you most afraid Yeah. Protection. Yep. What are you most afraid of? Mm-hmm. Uh, losing my income stream, losing my mind, losing, losing my capacity to play the sports that I do, right? Because mm-hmm. that's the only identity that I know. And that's mm-hmm. the one everybody relates to. Yeah. You know, and uh, so, I mean, I, I can, I've, I've spoken to business people um, quite a fair bit, actually. But every conversation has been unique and different, just mm-hmm. like every human being is unique and different. Mm-hmm. And so I'm creating an imagination of what to say, but what I would actually say, who knows, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah. you know, these are, these are generalities that are true. Jamie's really good at mm-hmm. moving a conversation towards issues of identity. Yeah. Um, um, and Donna, his wife as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah. 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 Well, I just, I just listened um, to his presentation that he calls, um, there's a, there's a monkey in my house, maybe. Oh, yes. The one from where he's in Indonesia. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, that's, so, great. so funny. That, yeah, that's funny. And so anyways, he tells a bunch of stories and that, and I just got introduced to him. A friend of mine sent me uh, Jamie um, Winship's uh, presentation. I was like, oh my God. So I've listened to it a couple of times. I mean, this is so good. And he uses some of the language that the Lord has kind of put in me as um, being, um, being other centered and being outward focused and self-giving love. And what can I do to, um, to touch the, the perichoresis of God is being included into that circle dance of, and all of these things. And I just want to say to all of our listeners, you have, you have to go to, um, astonished hearts, YouTube, um, channel and go and watch the videos by, uh, uh, Paul Young and, Baxter Kruger, and there's a bunch of other speakers in there. The Oneness with God, the Shack Revisited, all of those um, videos have um, so informed the way God has been cultivating my heart over the last couple of years. Um, this in one hour, uh, Paul, our, our time is, is I want to honor your time and I have to move on. It's just been an amazing pleasure to really... I podcast usually there's a lot of back and forth but you know what i felt like i i volleyed the ball to you and you just like you did i mean it was it was awesome i really feel like there's more conversation to have i would love to someday just have a a dinner and just get to know you a little bit you know deeper and more but this has been really beautiful and amazing. I put Paul's website, Paul WilliamPaulYoung.com on the on the screen. And so um, for those of you that are just listening, go to uh, um, WMPaulYoung.com and you can uh, find find products and everything that he that he has available there. YouTube, all of that, but I would encourage everyone, if you haven't read The Shack or watched the movie, please do so. It's been one of those things that the Lord has written some new uh, program um, scripting into me by just listening to the conversation that uh, McKenzie and the the three persons of the Godhead are are having, and it's just beautiful. So Paul, thank you for your time. This has been amazing. I'd love to just have more conversation. I have 25 more questions I didn't get to, but I'm really excited to begin the friendship. So thank you very much. Well, it's an eternal one. So we have plenty of time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And your folks. 
Yes. Well, good. Thank you. Well, um, friends, thank you for listening. Thanks for being a part of the prayer focus. And um, I hope this encouraged you, blessed you. I hope it leads you into deeper uh, friendship with God and relationship with those around you and really be able to truthfully live from your true authentic self from the inside. So bless you. And until next time, I will see you in the prayer room. Blessings. Oh my goodness. <laughs>